2 Corinthians chapter 4 and a short reading from verse 7 to the end of the chapter. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. So then, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. It is written, I believed, therefore I have spoken. With that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak, because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you in his presence. All this is for your benefit so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Therefore we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly We are being renewed day by day for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary but what is unseen is eternal. Shall I pray for you? Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the, uh, the way you have used Murray today to open your word to us. We ask that you'll be with him again by your spirit, working in him and your same spirit working in us, that we may hear the words that you have for us to hear and may take those words and live them today and always. Amen. I think there's something very appealing about finding treasure in an unlikely place. Back in Auckland, where we lived for 10 years, they used to have what were known as hard rubbish collections. Do you have, do you know what that means? Some do, some don't. Hard rubbish collection is where you can put out on the uh, side of the road your junk, uh, anything, big stuff, Carpets, fridges, furniture, tables, toys, stereos, 
all sorts of stuff, bikes. It all just goes out on the side of the road, sits around on the roadside for a week or so, it accumulates and then uh, the council sends around these enormous rubbish trucks and picks it all up. Well, kids have a field day when it's time for the hard rubbish collection. Out they go, scouting around the streets. Our kids would come back with a sandpit, a bike, toys, dolls, all sorts of stuff got accumulated. And then at night, parents would go out, kind of under the cover of dark. We'd, we'd drive around, we'd see other cars driving around, you know, cruising past these piles. Something appealing, isn't there, about finding uh, treasure in a pile of junk. Paul says in this passage that the world's most amazing treasure is found in the most unlikely place. What's the treasure? In a word, the gospel. In a few more words, verse 6. It's the light of the gospel of the glory of God, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. The Bible says that this, this manifestation of the glory of God in the face of Jesus is the most precious treasure in the world. And it's not talking here about an academic knowledge of God. It's talking about a deep heart knowledge of God. There's nothing more precious than that. There's nothing more precious than knowing Jesus and through Jesus knowing a glorious, a holy, righteous, merciful God. It's the greatest treasure in the world. We need to just pause there and observe that there is a particular danger for ministers and older Christians at precisely this point. It's the danger that we become so familiar with the treasure that we start to take it for granted. If you go to London, you can go to the Tower of London to view the crown jewels. And so crowds of tourists line up to view the crown jewels. But there are guards there who see the crown jewels every day and for them it's really just another day at the office. They're not even there to look at the crown jewels, they're there to look at the people who are looking at the crown jewels. And you know, Christian ministry, if you're not careful, can end up like that. You're handling the most precious things every day. My job as a teacher and a lecturer and a pastor and preacher is to spend a lot of time studying the word of God. The danger is that I can become so familiar with that that it's no longer that precious to me. We have to stop and ask ourselves, is this still the greatest treasure? Does the message of the gospel still stir you? Does it still move you? Does it still lift you up? Does it still inspire you and thrill you? And does it amaze you that God has entrusted this treasure to you and to me and ordained that we will be the means by which others come to know this treasure? 
because that's the unlikely place where this treasure is deposited. The treasure is the gospel, the great message of God in Christ. The unlikely place where that treasure is deposited is you and me and ministers and preachers and pastors and apostles, human beings who are likened here to jars of clay. We have this treasure in jars of clay. Now, jars of clay are just ordinary, everyday pots. They're they're basically the equivalent of an old bucket at the back door. A jar of clay in the first century was cheap, breakable and replaceable. That's you. (laughs) Sorry. Cheap, breakable, replaceable. You're an old bucket. (laughs) Some of you look like old buckets. (laughs) I'm too scared to eyeball anyone now. (laughs) You know, it's deliberately unflattering. And Paul is deliberately speaking in this unflattering way of himself and of the other apostles and anyone, really, who preaches the gospel message. It's a picture of our weakness and our frailty. And so as we read on, we see Paul speaking very openly about his weakness and frailty. Look at verse 8. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. It's pretty bad though, isn't it? Hard-pressed, perplexed, persecuted, struck down. Paul Barnett translates those words, pressured, cornered, hounded, depressed. Pressured, cornered, hounded, depressed. Have a look at chapter 6 for a moment. Sneak ahead. Still in Paul's digression. Look at the way he describes his ministry in verses 4 to 10. As servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, in great endurance, in troubles, hardships and distresses, in beatings, imprisonments and riots, in hard work, sleepless nights and hunger, in purity, understanding, patience and kindness, in the Holy Spirit and in sincere love, in truthful speech and in the power of God, with weapons of of righteousness in the right hand and in the left, through glory and dishonour, bad report and good report, genuine yet regarded as impostors, known yet regarded as unknown, dying and yet we live on, beaten and yet not killed, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, poor yet making many rich, having nothing, and yet possessing everything. Ministry is hard work. Why? Why does God allow it to be so difficult? Why doesn't he exempt us the pain, the hardship, the difficulties? 
Why is it that God hasn't chosen that when he saves someone, he just immediately transforms their life into something that's fit and vibrant and and kind of overcoming everything, setting Christians free from all trouble and trial and difficulty so that they live these lovely, happy, wealthy, victorious lives. Why doesn't he do that? Wouldn't that make a a great impact if, if every time someone was saved, you know, their life just became magnificently triumphant? Wouldn't more people listen and respond? And wouldn't it be easier for us to... Um, get people training for ministry? (laughs) Why doesn't God operate that way? The answer is simple, really. He wants the focus to be on him and his glory, not us and our glory. If the gospel is all about him, then it's best if we are nothing. It's not your party. I remember a a pastor speaking once who happened to have gold panning as his hobby and so he would go into the outbacks into little creeks and rivers and pan for gold as his form of recreation And on one occasion he apparently was panning and and came across this really significant nugget of gold. It was the biggest nugget he'd ever come across. It was so good that he decided to go to the jewellers and buy a very special little jewellery box to put it in. Marvellous little little box which opened up. And and so he put this um, nugget of gold in this dear little jewellery box and put it on his mantelpiece. He said what he found was that people would come around and they would all comment on the beautiful little box much more than on the nugget of gold. God's strategy is to put his gold in very plain boxes, buckets, jars of clay so that the focus is on the gold and not on us. That's God's brilliant gospel strategy. When we understand that strategy, there are two things that flow from it that we need to get. and These are the two things I want to talk about now. Two main applications that we very much need to take to heart when we understand God's strategy. The first is that God's gospel strategy demands humility. I've already alluded to this today because it's a theme running through these passages. There's a danger in Christian ministry and Christian life today that we want to be somebody. We want to have a name. We want to be successful. We want to do well. In fact, we live in the the era of the celebrity pastor. I was reading an article uh, a little while ago. It was in the Charisma magazine in 2008 about the status of celebrity pastors in the United States now. It it noted that celebrity-style pastors are sort of beyond the red carpets, limousines and large entourages of the 1990s and there are whole new 
benchmarks of expectation amongst the, uh, the really big name, high-flying pastors. He tells the story of someone in Texas who invited one of these very uh, well-known uh, big name pastors to speak at a conference. The guest speaker's uh, assistant faxed back the requirements. A five-figure honorarium, a $10,000 deposit for the private plane, a manicurist and hairstylist for the speaker before the engagement, a five-star hotel suite, a luxury car from the airport and room temperature perrier. Request of a visiting pastor. Chris and Jen's hospitality this weekend has been very good. (laughs) 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 That's really sickening, isn't it? I mean, that's just... You read it and think, oh, that can't be for real. It's, it's just, it is absolutely outrageous. What kind of a ministry is that when the expectation is that kind of money and pomp and ceremony and wealth? It's absolutely ludicrous. God does not want it. In interviews, if you apply for a job, they ask you about your strengths. There's a very real sense in which God is more interested in your weaknesses. Because when the jar, the clay jar, is most broken, that's actually when the treasure is most visible. In God's great strategy, your weaknesses may not actually be an impediment to the work of the gospel. And so I have to dare dare you to treasure those things that make you weak. That slight stutter, that slowness in reading, that proneness to anxiety or depression, that chronic fatigue, that plain face, that you really don't like seeing in the mirror. They may be the very things that God has chosen to use in you for the advance of the gospel. God is not trying to put together an all-star team. He is the star and he's quite happy to work with a bunch of nobodies. The issue is, are you prepared to be a nobody? There's another problem. Not only do we like to be someone, but we also like to have it easy. We'd really like to have a growing church without too much effort. We'd like to have um, great gospel ministry without opposition, please, without criticism, without stress, without anxiety. But as we have those sort of secret 
desires for easy ministry. We need to remember that we live in a uniquely wimpy age. We are not good in the West at suffering. Let me read to you a few words uh, penned by John Piper. Quote, One of the pervasive marks of our times is emotional fragility. It hangs in the air we breathe. We easily hurt. We pout and mope easily. We blame easily. We break easily. Our marriages break easily. Our faith breaks easily. Our happiness breaks easily. And our commitment to the church breaks easily. We are easily disheartened and it seems we have little capacity for surviving and thriving in the face of criticism and opposition. He continues, we all need help here. We are surrounded by and are part of a society of emotionally fragile quitters. The spirit of the age is too much in us. I was grabbed by that phrase, a society of emotionally fragile quitters. We don't like it hard. We really don't expect to suffer. In our Western culture we have been insulated from much of death and suffering and dying and disease and so we feel pretty sorry for ourselves when life is hard. And ministry is hard, so then we feel sorry for ourselves in ministry. We too easily forget that Embedded in the gospel itself is a profound paradox. The paradox is this. The way to life is via death. Every one of us here who has been brought to spiritual life has been brought to spiritual life through death. Jesus died. We were united with him in his death. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, which is an implement of death, and follow me. Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground, Jesus says in John 12, our Lord himself was pressured, cornered, hounded, depressed, distressed. But from his sufferings we have life. And now we are in him, his life is in us and we are therefore united with him in his sufferings. Look at verse 10. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life might be revealed in our mortal body. So then, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. That's the pattern of Christian ministry. The the person ministering the gospel must be prepared to die, die to themselves, to comfort, to ease, to self-rule. And in their death to self, life is given to others. 
We are united in the sufferings, in the death of Christ, in order that we might also be united with him in his resurrection and in his life-giving ministry. As you struggle, you bring life to others. And by God's grace, we're, we're not abandoned. We're not destroyed. He preserves us. But we live the death of Christ. Now I have to be honest and say I don't like the truth I'm preaching. Because I'm a part of the spirit of our age. I, I don't enjoy suffering. I don't enjoy criticism. I don't enjoy being pushed constantly beyond my limits and feeling like I'm at the edge of what I can cope with. I don't like ministry being hard. I like to play it safe. I like to work within my capacities and have a nice amount of time off and reasonable remuneration. But then it does me good to read about some of those who have gone before me. It's a good thing to read a bit of church history. Let me give one example then. Charles Simeon. Some of you will know Charles Simeon. A uh, 19th century Anglican clergyman in England. He pastored in the same church for 54 years. But for the first 12 years of that ministry, he encountered huge opposition from the congregation where he's in place. The, the congregation didn't want him. It was as simple as that. They wanted the other man, the curate. They didn't want him. And so in the good old days where people owned their pew, they locked the gates on their pews so that not only would they not turn up to church, but no one else could turn up and use their pew. Therefore, for 12 years, Simeon preached to a, a, a Congregation of people standing in the aisles and round the back, none of them able to to be seated. For ten of those years, there was barely a door that would be opened to him in the town. They didn't want to see him. They didn't want to hear from him. How many of us would have given up before the 12-year mark when things changed? But then he continued beyond that mark and after 25 years in ministry in that place, his voice gave way. He virtually lost his voice and could only preach in a whisper. That continued for 13 years until retirement age when he had planned to step aside and it was at that age that he regained his voice. So then he couldn't stop preaching. (laughs) He had to continue and did so for a total then of a 54-year ministry. Did he have it easy? Did he give up? You know, there are so many men and women of God who have gone before us knowing that 
The way of humility is the way of suffering and of sacrifice for the cause of Christ and for the work of the gospel. To avoid suffering may well be to seek a ministry without grace and power. And to go the opposite way, to court praise and reputation may well be to invite disaster. God has a way, I think, of removing people who are full of themselves and it's seldom pleasant. So God's gospel strategy demands humility. But Paul also opens to us in this passage another great truth. Not only does this strategy of treasure and jars of clay demand humility, it also generates hope. Strange as it may seem, this strategy is wonderfully designed by the Lord to give us hope in the work of the gospel. For one thing, it gives all of us a shot at ministry. Because God is not just going around picking out the clever guys. He's not just looking for the brightest and best. He's not just looking for the pretty ones, the handsome ones, the very intelligent and capable and articulate ones. He's looking for people who are available to him. People who are yielded to him. People who love Jesus. And who will offer to him whatever they have. And as I've said, he he frequently uses our weaknesses. And he uses weak people. Isn't it in 1 Corinthians, Paul says to the church, think of what you were when you were saved. Not many of you are wise, not many are influential, not many of noble birth. He's saying to the church, you're a pretty ordinary bunch, aren't you? And that is what God has chosen. Ordinary men and women and children. So you don't have to be the best to be useful to the Lord. You don't have to be wonderfully gifted. The Lord will see to it that you have the gifts that he wants you to have for the ministry that he gives to you. That's wonderfully encouraging for those of us who are always inclined to feel inadequate. If you're one of those people who never feel like you've really got very much to offer and you always feel like you're really not up to the stuff that God's put in front of you, well, you are perfectly suited to the ministry he's put before you. God delights to use you in your weakness. More than that, not only does it give all of us a shot at ministry, but it means we can expect God to do much through us, much more than we might possibly imagine. Chapter 4 and verse 7 speaks of the all-surpassing power that is from God. All-surpassing power. That is God's ability to work in ways far beyond what we possibly expect. He can work in the hardest of situations where we least expect him to. He can use our poorest sermons. He can use our most blundery witnessing. 
He can use the most horrible Bible study. He can use the stuff that just, from our point of view, doesn't go well at all. And later on you find that it's been a great blessing to someone. That's a wonderful thing to get to know. So often in ministry you find yourself stepping back and almost as an onlooker on what God is doing. It's not what you're doing. You've stuffed it up, you've messed it up again, but God is carrying on a good work. It's his power, not yours. But best of all, the strategy helps us keep our eyes on what really counts. It's a strategy marvellously designed to fix our eyes on eternity instead of on the here and now. So I come to verses 16 and 17. We do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. What Paul's saying is that as we go about the work of ministry, in weakness and in vulnerability, depending only on the power of God to use weak vessels like us, as we go about that, we learn to value different things. The world looks less and less appealing. Money, fame, success, position has less and less hold on us. Thoughts of doing well increasingly fade. In trial and suffering we start to ache for heaven. Haven't you found that? When life's going well, you kind of want to live here forever. When life is hard, you start to think about how good it will be to be in a new heaven and a new earth. To be in a home of righteousness. So Paul puts things on the scales and starts to weigh them next to each other. Now the weight of something really depends on what you compare it to. Is is a pound of butter heavy? (laughs) Well it depends what you compare it to. If I put a pound of butter on one side of the scales and a feather on the other, then yeah, a pound of butter is heavy. If I put a pound of butter on one side of the scales and the refrigerator from which I took it on the other side, then the pound of butter ain't heavy. Paul now puts all his troubles, all his hardships, imprisonments, floggings, persecutions, difficulties, opposition, he puts all the ministry pain and agony on the scales on one side. And friends, if he went and put on the other side worldly success, glamour, home, children, fun, pleasure, if he put that on the other side, 
then the weight of suffering would seem immense. But he doesn't put that on the other side. He puts all his troubles and hardships and pains and agonies on the scales and on the other side he puts glory, heaven, eternity in the presence of God, a new heaven and a new earth, the eternal city, life in Christ forevermore. How much do his troubles weigh now? The phrase he uses is amazing, isn't it? Our light and momentary troubles. Take them in any other way and they don't look like light or momentary. They look jolly hard. But in comparison with what is to come, they really are but light and momentary troubles. Friends, you can put on the scales now all that you have found hard in living for Christ. I invite you to put on the scales all the heartbreak, all the tears, all the stuff you've struggled with as you've tried to serve the Lord, all the people who've let you down, all the church events that have just gutted you, all the comments that have ripped into you, all the things which have hurt, put them on the scales and put on the other side what is yet to come. Don't put on the other side houses and luxury cruises and big retirement funds and all that stuff. Put on the other side, heaven. Put on the other side, all that will come to you through Christ when you are ushered into glory, when you are a resident of the new Jerusalem, when you are a citizen of the new heaven and the new earth. And you will see that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. When we are struggling in Christian living or in ministry, we need to fix our eyes not on what is seen but on what is unseen. Because what is seen is temporary but what is unseen is eternal. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Where are your eyes as you serve the Lord? On yourself, on troubles, on what you're missing out on, or on all that is in store through you, in store for you through Jesus Christ our Lord. I've spoken of two things from this passage. Hope and humility. And I really cannot think of two more important 
things for us to have in view as we go about serving the Lord. One to push you down. One to lift you up. Humility, because you're just a a clay jar. Hope, because you've already received the most precious treasure in the world and one day you'll be ushered into eternal glory that will far outweigh it all. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that we might live these two gospel truths, humility and hope. Help us to be prepared to be nobodies. Help us to be prepared to suffer and struggle and work hard for the sake of the gospel. And help us to never lose sight of how precious the gospel is, nor what is in store for us in eternity. Father, you know all your people here today, and I have no doubt that there are people here who have struggled much in the work of the gospel. Grant, dear Father, that they might put all those struggles on the scales and see them in comparison with the weight of glory that is to be revealed. And so lift them up and encourage them and strengthen them to go on. And help us all to fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Help us to fix our eyes not on what is temporary, but on what is eternal. And so may we press on Help us not to lose heart. Help us to do whatever we can to advance the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ until the knowledge of God covers the earth as the waters cover the sea and Christ returns triumphant and victorious with all his enemies put under his feet and the kingdom handed over to the Father that our triune God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit may receive the glory for ever and ever. Amen.